Hello. Last week, South Africa experienced some of the worst violence since the 1990s. The Rainbow Nation, with arguably the world's most liberal constitution, erupted into violent riots sparked by a toxic mix of unemployment, corruption, political tension, and tribal nationalism, following the jailing of former president Jacob Zuma. As the world looked on in shock, I asked veteran journalist Peter Thornycroft how Africa's poster child for equality and economic progress descended into such chaos. Zimbabwean-born Peter has been reporting on Africa for the Daily Telegraph for almost half a century. So Peter Thornycroft, welcome to Conversations with Peter Wood. Hello there. Hello there, Peter. <laughs> Peter, the last time I checked, and I'm sure you can update me on it, some 200 people have been killed and around 3,000 arrested. Images of entire supermarkets and shopping malls emptied of goods and in some cases burnt to the ground, cars smashed up and huge crowds of people in a free-for-all thieving frenzy have been splashed across the news worldwide. We're told it all began after the jailing of former President Zuma. So before we get to the why, perhaps we should find out more about Zuma himself. Who are his supporters and why was he jailed? Jacob Zuma came from a peasant family in uh, KwaZulu-Natal, the old Natal province. Uh, his mother was a domestic worker. He was illiterate. Uh, his, there's not much known about his father. And he joined the ANC when it was still a banned organization as quite a young man, and he was jailed for that. In other words, the ANC was an illegal organization. He joined it. He hadn't done anything for them at that stage, and he landed up with 10 years in prison on Robben Island. So Robben Island was the main prison where Nelson Mandela was, off, the, uh, off Cape Town, and it was extremely hard. It was extremely hard in those early days of Robben Island when Mandela was jailed. So there were a couple of people on the island who helped Jacob Zuma learn to read and write. So he did 10 years and then he was released from prison and he went like many um, uh, people who had been released from the island, he went into exile and landed up um, in various stages in both Mozambique and in um, Lusaka. Zambia was basically the home of the ANC, especially after they were kicked out of Mozambique um, by uh, President Samora Michelle, who was given a, you know, an ultimatum by South Africa, if you don't get rid of the ANC, we'll bomb, we'll bomb you to pieces. And so they, very few remained in Mozambique and they made their headquarters in Zambia. And eventually Jacob Zuma became head of intelligence in the ANC. And he operated also around Swaziland, Eswatini as it is now, and the intelligence operations of the ANC were, were, were obviously enormous because they were infiltrating guerrillas into South Africa. They were trying to break the terrible bannings and um, organizations were banned. People were listed, so you couldn't quote them. And we journalists, found it very difficult to actually get the story out, but we did, we did get it out because you couldn't quote ban people. So we were very inventive and we had 
um, huge um, uh, numbers of skilled lawyers, unlike anywhere else in Africa, South Africa did manage to keep the story going despite all of that. So Jacob Zuma was at the time, you know, in, in Lusaka. It is unclear from the records that we know of what Jacob Zuma actually achieved as head of intelligence. One of the breakthroughs for him though, was when a South African journal, two South African journalists, one called Max de Freer, the other one called Jacques Poe, Afrikaans journalist, working for um, a very bossy, small um, paper that somehow survived for Freer Vietblatt, which means free weekly, uh, made a deal with a South African policeman, an underground policeman called Dirk Kutsia. And Dirk Kutsia started to reveal some of the most terrible things that he and his colleagues had been doing in South Africa. And eventually they managed to get Dirk Kutsia out of South Africa and he and Jacques Poe went to Lusaka and Dirk Kutsia was handed over to Jacob Zuma for, Jake, for Dirk Kutsia to explain to the ANC in exile, where he would do it quite freely, what the internal goings on were in the South African police, especially in a hit squad called Flatbus. So um, Dirk Kutsia played a, a fundamental role in explaining to the ANC and then to the world, to journalists like me, some of the depths of depravity within the special forces of the police called flat flaps, where they just went and killed people, you might never find their bodies, some of the bodies have still never been found. So in some ways, that was Jacob Zuma's triumph was managing Dirk Kutsia. Later on, of course, Dirk Kutsia was telling us that um, Jacob Zuma didn't manage him at all, that Jacob Zuma was sick of two short planks, that he was uh, undisciplined, et cetera, et cetera. That, that may have been so, Maybe it was Dirk, maybe it was uh, Jacob Zuma, but eventually, anyway, they both came back from exile. And Jacob Zuma, that was in 1990, then uh, was completely lost in Johannesburg, had nowhere to live. And in fact, the journalists um, housed him because the ANC had nowhere to live. They were very poor. And all I can say is that his career within the ANC from 1990, it's unbanning, even up until the elections. 1994, the main role he played was to persuade Zulus who supported the Encarta Freedom Party under Chief Gacha Butelezi to stop doing violence. The violence between the ANC and Encarta at that time, between mid-1990 to the end of 1993, was the worst violence South Africa had ever seen. And in fact, in one month, I think in sometime in 93, something like 350 people were killed, but it was only in the old Vitbata's Ranch, which is Kharteng today, and in Natal, which is now KwaZulu Natal. Those, the killings in Natal were in the uh, rural areas and they were massacred mostly in, 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 in rural, in the rural parts. But it was around Johannesburg, the East Rand, Boxburg, Benoni, the mining, the mining part of Johannesburg. The, the violence was simply indescribable. That's why this violence we've just been through for older journalists like me sent a shiver down my spine because I just remember those days 
uh, where, you know, photographers in particular were being killed. I'm afraid to say several committed suicide because they couldn't take the violence that they were having to shoot with their cameras. Reporters can always stand behind a tree or stand behind a building, but four photographers have to go in there with their cameras. And we're talking about, you know, some years ago where their lenses weren't as strong as they are now. And uh, the, 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 the situation for photographers was, was, was completely and absolutely ghastly. And, um, and many reporters covering this, you had to be very um, well managed to keep going. Um, and for the foreign media, the New York Times, et cetera, et cetera, they very much depended on the domestic press. The domestic South African media was, you know, despite everything, apart from the television, which had been controlled by the state, was a very, um, um, like nowhere else in Africa, it did tell the story despite the rules and regulations. So Jacob Zuma then emerged into, after he played a key role in um, quieting the violence between the Zulus loyal to the Ntata Freedom Party and the Zulus loyal to the ANC. And was also, did quite a lot to convince the king of the Zulus um, to play a neutral role. And eventually, we, by 90, end of 1993, suddenly Butelezi said, we will take part in the elections and the violence just died. And we went into the elections led by Nelson Mandela and got called a rainbow nation, thanks to uh, Bishop Desmond Tutu and all seemed okay. And uh, you then had five years of Nelson Mandela and then Thabo Mbeki came to power, which was, some would think, uh, a wrong move, Mandela wanted Cyril Ramaphosa, the present president of um, South Africa, but he was persuaded by the dying Oliver Tambo that um, Thabo Mbeki would be better. And I won't go into Thabo Mbeki's um, presidency, but uh, it was a two-term presidency with good and bad, and of course the shame on Thabo Mbeki was his refusal to recognize HIV AIDS and it took the treatment action campaign, the always, always bossy South Africans. You won't, you won't recognize HIV AIDS, it's stuff you will do it ourselves. And they formed the treatment action campaign. And um, the, the, eventually, of course, HIV was recognized. And, but it was the incoming president, Jacob Zuma, who made sure that the government would supply antiretrovirals, which by the way, it was the South African, the bullying um, action, uh, <laughs> street, street activists who forced the international manufacturers to greatly reduce the price of antiretrovirals. And so Jacob Zuma, they did that, and Jacob Zuma made sure that the state would provide antiretrovirals for all, all who could, who, whether they could or couldn't afford it. And so this terrible affliction that affected so many in, in Africa started to come under control. I mean, Jacobs, I mean, Thabo and Becky did really very great harm over that. So Jacob Zuma came into power. Uh, extraordinarily, some people thought this was in, in um, the Congress was in 2007, and there were two lots of people who wanted Jacob Zuma. 
I wanted Jacob Zuma to come into power because I thought he would challenge Robert Mugabe in neighboring Zimbabwe, who nobody would criticize. African leaders wouldn't criticize him. And in fact, Jacob Zuma became the first African leader. And then of course the president of Zambia could criticize Robert Mugabe. And he brought, he managed to get people treated for HIV AIDS. What we didn't then realize then when he was actually sworn into power and took over in 2009, was it started this incredible corruption of state-owned enterprises, the railways, the bridge companies, the electricity supply company, the water companies, you name it, it happened. In the way it happened in a way was via the intelligence services, which um, were stuffed with Zuma supporters from within the ANC. And then along arrives the, um, the Indian family known as the Guptas. He'd been in South Africa even prior to democracy, but via Jacob Zuma, they managed to manipulate who he would appoint to the cabinet. And he appointed those people they approved. And via that, according to revelations that have come out in a massive commission of inquiry in South Africa, a 55 billion US dollars was stolen between uh, 2009 and 2018. And this is not allegations, as we have in Zimbabwe, we have allegations, we don't get proof. This is documented with balance sheets, statements, and this vast amount of corruption cases going through the, uh, the, the Commission of Inquiry are landing up in the National Prosecuting Authority which Jacob Zuma had taken down and massacred, but slowly they rebuilt that. And when I say massacred, of course, I mean, you know, um, I don't mean really massacred, but he put in his own people there. The National Prosecuting Authority had to be cleaned out of his favorites, many of whom were underqualified and new people were brought in via Cyril Ramaphosa in 2018. And one hopes that they will be able to process the amazing amount of documentation that it takes to get these complex corruption cases to court and that people are going to be prosecuted and put in jail and the much of that was the exposure was not only the journalists i have i cannot praise south african journalists enough but mostly from amal bangani a guy called sam soul from durban an old colleague they they picked on at this, they picked away at investigative journalists picking away at it. They raised donor funds, mostly from South African business people and others, and they exposed time after time the corruption that had happened. For example, the one that amused me most was they um, bought these fire, these um, train engines from um, China, which couldn't fit under South African bridges. Oh my God! <laughs> so it was. It was. It was just. It was careless corruption. It went, but they did it through the basically through the intelligence services. So it was the journalists who exposed it, and then also the um, public protector, a woman called Tuli Madonsela. She was absolutely brilliant, and Jacob Zuma couldn't stand it. So you land up at the end of two hundred one eight. Jacob Zuma is forced out of office slightly earlier than went by the time before his, his um, tenures were up. 
and in comes with a very, very narrow victory at the ANC Congress, Cyril Ramaphosa, who inherits this god-awful mess. And we're sitting here at this moment in time saying, why didn't he clean it up earlier? Why didn't he get clean up the intelligence services? Well, he did, he has done some of it. It clearly wasn't enough. Some people will tell you it's because he felt so fragile in power that he was nervous that within the ANC he couldn't survive because his victory within the ANC to make him the presidential candidate was so narrow. We're sitting here now um, with, in addition to this, Jacob Zuma had been on trial. The first trial was um, he was charged with rape. He was charged with raping one of his friends young disabled daughters and he won that case he was found not guilty he was then also charged with corruption in connection with an arms deal south africa came out of apartheid and between the old guard and the new guard they spent something like um 4.8 billion pounds on new weapons and aircraft which south africa didn't need all it needed to do was boost its army it had no it had no um enemies and that deal was exposed by an ANC MP in Parliament and, and another MP as well but called Andrew Feinstein who then went off to UK and has documented this arms deal which included BAE, the Swedes, the Germans, you name it, you know arms dealers are arms dealers. So that was the first real blow and um, in connection with that Jacob Zuma was charged with um, corruption of accepting a pension, so the state says, from the French arms company called T-H-A-L-E-S, Thales. Jacob Zuma's colleague, advisor, financial advisor, was um, found guilty of doing that and he went to jail for 15 years. Why Jacob Zuma wasn't charged a long time with him at that time is a long story. Anyway, he wasn't, he has managed for the last nearly 20 years to put off that case, to, you know, the, the, the rule of law is a long and clumsy beast, and not in America, but this is South Africa's law is very much based on the British system. So you, you can go, you can postpone, you can appeal, you can do any number of things to delay your cases. And this is part of the case against um, Jacob Zuma. So the Commission of Inquiry into State Captures, it's called, anti-corruption asked Jacob Zuma to come to the Commission of Inquiry to tell them about what had happened in various state-owned enterprises while he was president and he got there he delayed and he delayed and he came back again and eventually the State Capture Commission of Inquiry summonsed him to appear he would not appear and eventually he was charged in the Constitutional Court, the Apex Court, with contempt of court. And as you would find in the UK as well, to offend your court system is very serious. And he was sentenced to 15 months imprisonment, which on parole would mean he'd probably do three months or one week. That imprisonment of Zuma um, landed parts of Ireland. So he's in jail now, but yes. how much of this current violence is linked to Zuma and how much is linked to 
social issues, inequality, or, or even criminal opportunism? Zuma was the spark. There is no question from what we know that this, you don't go and um, blow up 14 communication tires because you want to loot a packet of biscuits or some meat to eat. This, this was very much an, an organized and very quickly organized violence that did strategic targets, transport, uh, transport, etc. And of course, with a poor population, with these massive number of people unemployed, encouraged to go and loot, they looted. But the targets that they did, the first targets they did were strategic targets. They, 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 they did the transport from the biggest port in Africa, Durban, which goes from Durban is the busiest economic road in Africa. It goes from Durban right to Lumbumbashi in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where the cobalt comes from, then down through Zambia, picking up the copper, through Zimbabwe, picking up the tobacco, and to Durban. This is an incredibly important um, 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 road for South Africa and for you know, Southern Africa. And they blew up 35 trucks on that road, closed the main road as well. They, you could see as the violence began after the roads, the, the attack on the roads and the communication towers, you could actually see from the TV cameras, some of the police reluctant to act. Um, clearly the intelligence that Cyril Ramaphosa was dealing with was faulty, otherwise the army would have been there immediately. Nobody, nobody could believe it at first, nobody could believe it. So yes, it started off from Zuma and, and allegedly members of his close um, community of intelligence experts, people who'd been dismissed by Cyril Ramaphosa, and it hit out in the Zulu areas. In other words, in Kharteng, there's a large community of Zulus who mostly are unemployed, who live around Johannesburg and then in their homeland, KwaZulu-Natal. It didn't happen in any of the other provinces. And um, it quickly died down in, in Gauteng because there was resistance. Around Johannesburg, there was resistance and it was quelled, but they still did a lot of damage. But in KwaZulu-Natal, the damage is simply we, we still don't know all of it. Last night I discovered that 145 schools were destroyed. 145 schools. You know, 141 pharmacies. They destroyed the factory which assembles medication for antiretrovirals. Now there are 5.5 million people in South Africa with HIV AIDS. And another one and one million people actually who are still not taking the antiretrovirals. And it also packages the HIV AIDS medication for export to the rest of Africa. It destroyed pharmaceutical warehouses near the port. So it then, of course, people were encouraged to go and loot. And they did, and loot they did. But there was, then the resistance did come in. You saw other people in KwaZulu-Natal chasing out the looters, 
trying to private security companies very much turned against them and eventually they did get control and now you have this the very difficult business of you've got something like 340 dead of whom 200 were murdered you have more than 3,000 people under arrest that to prosecute them god alone knows how that will happen because of the 3,000 arrested how many people just looted the bag of sugar and how many people actually did serious violence and killings um and you have a south africa deeply shocked in the middle of a pandemic you know with a population of 60 million of whom we don't know how many but some people would say up to 4 million of refugees asylum seekers from somalia ethiopia pakistan zimbabwe mozambique um, Malawi, Burundi, many, some of whom are not documented as asylum seekers or refugees. And because South Africa is a second world country, it doesn't get any assistance from the UN to cope with those people. So it's, uh, you know, South Africa is basically bankrupt. <laughs> I mean, and I mean, how the hell will it cope with this? So that is actually the saga. And I want to say about the violence. Although it was only a week of violence, it was in real terms the worst violence South Africa has ever seen. You're saying it's the worst violence South Africa's ever seen? Ever. Wow. Well, I mean, what, it, what I found was extraordinary that was the police seemed ill-equipped and, the, and the, yes. army, the army largely silent. Of course, at a meeting of top security officials, the defense force bluntly reminded South Africans that soldiers are not there to enforce laws. That's the job of the police. Um, I guess this is a nod to South Africa's infamous apartheid states of emergency in the 1980s when the country was under martial law. So I guess well, one question needs to be answered and you have partially answered this. Where was the intelligence? Surely the government should have anticipated no. this. Yes, now that is the main question is, um, is Ramaphosa since 2018 did get rid of some um, intelligence people because the first thing he did when he came to power was he assembled together a committee of well-qualified people to look into the intelligence community and they had five months to do their job and they made certain recommendations. Some of those were carried out, some were not. We do not know whether that's because he feared his own fragility but there's one thing that happened in 2012 that I hadn't mentioned in 2012 there were striking miners um, in the platinum world and um, at a place called Marikana and they these miners and their followers had done some of the most grotesque murders one has ever seen Cyril Ramaphosa was then a businessman he wasn't um you know, particularly uh, connected sort of politically at that stage. And he wrote an email encouraging the police to act against the um, striking miners who had done violence. And, you know, it, it became a massacre. There was a site called known as the Marikana Massacre. And that was in 2012. And, uh, you know, scores were killed. And it, it, it has been there was a commission of inquiry, there was, you name it. And Cyril Ramaphosa has that, 
hanging around his neck. The Marikana massacre hangs around his neck. And so what you will notice with the police is that they never use live ammo. They use rubber bullets. They are clearly not trained in defensive. Um, like you see in London, you see the police, they're so well equipped with their shields, etc. They're clearly that training has been short. They, they didn't, they did, they were not able to stop it. And really, um, some of them even you saw that they were overwhelmed. They were literally overwhelmed. There weren't enough of them. They didn't deploy them. And the army, which some people say should have been sent in immediately, was sent in late. And in Durban, for some reason, in Durban, the capital, the, you know, the main city, the port city, didn't receive the army till right at the end. So, yeah, there are a whole lot of every day the newspapers and the media is charring this over. You cannot imagine, you know, South Africa has a lot of talkers, a lot of analysts. Um, as I said, no matter what apartheid might have done, it didn't stop. <laughs> didn't yeah. stop it elsewhere the chattering the analysis the academics the scientists who are all chewing this over all day every day it never stops and obviously they're going to be consequences now one of the things the consequences is you know when zuma has applied to the constitutional court for a rescission in other words he said the court has made a mistake you can't appeal the Constitutional Court, it is the highest court, but he went with an application for rescission, and we think there'll be two minority judgments. He cannot win it, but when he doesn't, will that will there be violence again? And then, of course, he has to go to court. He has to go to court on the 10th of August on that corruption case I told you about, the arms deal and the French manufacturer fails, who also claim innocence. Uh, We're waiting for several outcomes. We're waiting the, the ruling by the Constitutional Court on Zuma's application for rescission. It's not an appeal. It's, we think you made a mistake. Um, he will never win that. There, there may be two minority judgments. That may be the delay. But overwhelmingly, the court will throw that out. Secondly, on the 10th of August, he has to go to court, a virtual court, um, which he managed to delay on the 19th of July. Um, very careful judge. And that is in connection with the case, the corruption case over the alleged bribes for him and for the French arms dealers sales. This is a 20-year-old case. Then one has to look at other cases against him. They will no doubt be cases as the National Prosecuting Authority puts together the dockets, some of which will be a ton of paper. <laughs> Each one will be a sort of a ton of paper. These complex dockets that have to be put together over the 55 billion US dollars worth of corruption that happened in 2009 to 2018 when Jacob Zuma was in power. We don't know what those are yet, but there will be some of them. Jacob Zuma, as you know, was Neno. He built himself an estate in northern KwaZulu-Natal, and he was uh, found to have stolen money or misused money to upgrade his security on his estate outside of the government rules and regulations, and he's still paying that money back. 
He's got a one million pound bill, legal bill from the Department of Justice, as they paid for some of his um, his legal costs, which the state says and and the courts have agreed he owes not the state that one million pounds he has to find. So Jacob Zuma is in a great deal of trouble, one way or another. No matter what, no matter what happens. With all of these cases going on, he's uh, 79 years old, he's in good health, he's the most charming man. Jacob Zuma is extremely charming. He's friendly, unofficial, he's not particularly well educated, he's not certainly not an intellectual. And every time the moment gets bad, he breaks into these enchanting Zulu songs and everyone is singing and dancing and has forgotten about politics and Jacob Zuma has cheered them up. Cyril Ramaphosa cannot dance or sing. <laughs> um, and so you, you, you've got these, in a way, two cultures together. The sophisticated businessman Cyril Ramaphosa, who made himself rich legally when he didn't become president after Mandela. He used black economic empowerment, which is formal legislation, which was to get black people into all the white-owned businesses, some of them. And he is a much more formal man than Jacob Zuma, who is kind of the traditional leader who loves the Zulu ceremonies, etc. The question of tribalism in South Africa hardly exists. You know, um, Cyril Ramaphosa comes from a tribe called the Vendors, but he was brought up in Soweto. Everyone's every tribe in Soweto. It's the biggest township. They even have a sort of a Tsotsital language, a sort of a, its own. A casual language that is made up of all the different languages. So you don't really know. Um, it's not obvious who belongs to what tribe. But of course, the biggest population is the Zulus, and they are the most important province for the ANC. So one wonders about KwaZulu Natal, this incredibly beautiful, beautiful province, um, which has been wrecked. From eighteen from the eighteen hundreds onwards and fought, he, so many wars were fought in KwaZulu Natal, so many massacres leading up to the independence legislature independence um, um, elections, and now you've got the Jacob Zuma problem, and it lost a lot of its industry, the sugar industries half what it was, the Chinese took over. Um, the textile industry in South Africa, one way or another, all those textile factories have closed. And so life in KwaZulu Natal financially is extremely difficult. International tourists no longer go to KwaZulu Natal, they go to the Western Cape. You can buy a house in Durban for so cheaply, it's amazing. And even cheaper now. I would imagine you couldn't give a house away in Durban. And you know, the University of KwaZulu-Natal, which is, was one of them, was the most vibrant university in the resistance to apartheid, had some very bad experiences and, and was undermined, which is recovered now. In fact, during the pan, during this um, pandemic, most of the uh, extraordinary science that's coming out of South Africa, you know, identifying variants, et cetera, et cetera, is coming from KwaZulu-Natal. Um, well, 
I mean, Peter, it's absolutely extraordinary. You know, it's certainly not the free-for-all thieving, the, the free-for-all thieving spree that everyone outside of South Africa thought it was. I mean, it sounds to me that it, well, it has the hallmarks of a, an attempted coup or an insurrection. Yes. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And analysts like um, Prof. William Gomede and Stephen Friedman occurred. Stephen Friedman decided, described what happened as a fight among the elites. Um, Gomede is saying that the ANC will split. And the ANC is the oldest political organization in Africa. And the, you know, the first newspapers in Africa mm. began in South Africa. Um, it has this long, long history. And today in a digital publication called The Daily Maverick is a piece from a guy from Cape Town who was a famous anti-apartheid campaigner. He did a long time in jail. And he just said, this is not the ANC that I, I joined in order to overcome apartheid and have democracy. This is another ANC. So the ANC within itself is an enormous mm. inner turmoil. I and there are two branches. Yeah. You know, the, the old Democrats and then there's the Zuma faction. There's no question it's a Zuma faction. Mm -hmm. Hey, Peter, you're a Zimbabwean. Um, yes. As you know, Zimbabwe relies heavily on South Africa for its goods. So will this affect Zimbabwe or worse, have a trigger on effect or will Zimbabwe largely stay unaffected by it? Well, Zimbabwe is so wrecked. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Hard to wreck it more than it is wrecked. <laughs> Although there has been a very good um, maize crop in the uh, 20, 20, 21 season. They had good rains after drought. So people are not going to starve in Zimbabwe. They've done very well on the maize. And they're also doing some quite progressive agriculture. There are quite a lot of, funnily enough, of whites going back onto the land on informal uh, informal. Um, ways because President Emerson Mnangagwa, unlike Robert Mugabe, is not a racist. And so there's, there is a rejuvenation of agriculture. But what did happen when the land grab happened in 20, 2000 was the diversity of agriculture was completely lost. So you're back there with that vile tobacco crop, which is vile for the earth and vile for human beings. And because it has seen many of the indigenous forests cut to cure the tobacco because the new farmers can't afford coal to fire up and cure their tobacco. So Zimbabwe's agriculture is just tobacco now. It is virtually only tobacco. There are little shoots coming out. I see little shoots coming out. But where Zimbabwe will, was affected was the transport of its exports to Durban for that week and then the import, many imported goods from South Africa to Zimbabwe. And for many Zimbabweans who fled Robert Mugabe and um, remain informally in South Africa, it's no longer, there's, there's, there is anti, there's xenophobia in South Africa, no question, because there are so many foreigners here. So the Zimbabweans are, are disconcerted. Uh, they, they, South Africa is no longer the safe place that they 
have used all for generations will run to South Africa. The ones from Bulawayo in the southern part of Zimbabwe speak the same languages. The Shonas in the northern part and the eastern part speak different languages. The Shona language, you don't see many of them here, but it's, it has definitely been a safety place to run to. For many, it's been the place to come to them better off because the hospitals all collapsed. All, all of those wonderful hospitals in Zimbabwe basically largely collapsed. State education has collapsed. This is the biggest tragedy in Zimbabwe, is the wonderful achievements, some of them inherited at the, you know, in, in 1980, and then massively expanded with state education. It's gone, it's over. It is shocking, the education in Zimbabwe. It is dreadful at the moment. It's one of the biggest tragedies of Zimbabwe. But they are very, very dependent on South Africa, and clearly, with on the eastern side of it, in northern Mozambique, the war in northern Mozambique, you know, the insurgents in northern Mozambique, the, the, uh, the um, uprisings in Swaziland, Eswatini, against the king, where we still don't know the death toll. The official death toll is 128. Um, human rights people say it's much more, but we, we can't find out how much it is. So you've got northern Mozambique, you've got Eswatini, and now you've got South Africa with this instability for the region. It's not good. It's a very, it's a moment of great regional instability. Well, Peter, perhaps we can get you back another time to talk about Zimbabwe, but sadly, we're out of time for this podcast. A thousand thanks for joining me on Conversations with Peter Wood. Thank you very much, Peter. And it's lovely to see you and uh, thank you. And lovely to hear your voice again. Take care. <laughs> Bye. Well, that's all for now. But if you enjoyed listening to that podcast, you might also find my book, Mud Between Your Toes, Faintly Amusing. You can buy the book on Amazon. You can find both series one and two of my podcasts on a plethora of platforms from direct links on my Mud Between Your Toes Facebook page to apps such as Podbean, Apple Music, iTunes Store, Spotify Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, CastBox, TuneIn Radio and Google Podcasts. So don't miss out on my next episode. Goodbye.